let's start with a word of prayer. Gracious God, once again we come before your throne of grace asking for your mercy and trusting in your kindness for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. We thank you for revealing your name and your will uh, and your promises in your word through your prophets and apostles. We ask that you would give us your spirit so that we may be wise to salvation. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Okay, uh, we're going to do, um, just clipping along, uh, t- mostly topically in our class, as you know, we're going to do today, we're going to begin the subject of healing. So we're going to talk about miracles in general, and uh, healings in the book of Acts, especially one, and that may take us a couple of weeks, or I don't know, after that, we will do probably exorcism, which I think will take a week. We won't do an exorcism. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about exorcism. We'll, I guess we'll do one if we need to. Um, but we'll, we'll learn about exorcism from uh, the book of Acts, but we, of course, touch on the Gospels as well. We will, after that, uh, we'll do persecution and martyrdom. And after that, evangelism and or eschatology, all time depending. Okay? So today, miracles and healings. Before I get started, someone asked me um, after class last time, I just want to take a minute to comment on Bible translations. Now, everybody has their favorite Bible translations, so that's great. And in fact, people in the room probably have different ones with them. And you have, maybe you have a couple even that you like to consult. And that's, that's a, actually a pretty good practice. What I use is uh, most of the time, when at least what I'm using for this class um, as, a, as a translation. Sometimes I actually get fancy and look at the Greek. But when I'm not doing that, I like to use the English Standard Version, uh, ESV. It's quite good. Um, Bible translations, there's a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum is they try to be very, very literal to the grammar of the original language. Okay. And then the other spectrum is where they try to make it super readable. And so the, the super literal ones to the original language, they're very reliable in that respect, but they can be kind of choppy and a little bit wooden, to re- a little hard to read, because going from one language to another isn't always smooth. The super readable ones, depending on how they do that, they may be too much paraphrasing, which is not good. So sometimes you want to balance that. I think the ESV... Uh, leans more towards the literal one, but is still quite quite readable. Some of you will probably like the New International Version, which is also a pretty popular one. But another, uh, two more, I'll just name two more. Um, the, another one would be the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. Uh, it definitely is going to be more literal in terms of the translation to the original language. So if you want to consult an English Bible translation that is, that is going to be very, very closely tied to the original link. NASB is a pretty good one to go to. Uh, but then again, it might be a little harder to, to read it. You have to read it a couple times to get. Um, and yet another one, the final one I'll recommend, is the New King James Version. Uh, you, you, maybe you grew up or your family history, you, you people knew the King James, the King James Version. The King James Version is named after King James of the 17th century. It was translated in the year 1611 and uh, with very few modifications and has lasted up into the 20th century, the King James Version. And it's very, very good as a, as a translation, especially considering the time in which it was done. And, but there's a new King James, which is 20th century updating of the language, which is very poetic and beautiful, like the King James, but still a, quite a good translation. So those are, those are some English language translations that, uh, that, I, that I recommend and what, what I frequently will use myself. Okay, so I've uh, touched that and I've already mentioned our plan for today. Um, so first, a few words about miracles and then we'll look at one of the healing miracles in the book of Acts. And if you want a thumb to that, now we're gonna look at Acts chapter three, pretty much the whole chapter if I can get it read, get it done. Uh, Acts chapter three, is the, is the specific passage that we will uh, try to, try to uh, um, examine. Now, miracles, uh, 
Okay, so first, uh, first I should, I have two presuppositions. Before I talk about miracles in the Bible, I want to tell you what my two presuppositions are, and they're probably ones that, that you share. The first presupposition that I am operating with is that the Bible is God's word and is inerrant. Okay, so that the Bible, as we have it, is in fact the word of God, therefore is reliable, authoritative, and, uh, and without error. That doesn't mean that translators can't make mistakes, but uh, as, as we have it, especially the original languages, that, uh, that we, you know, so the word that we often use is inerrant, no error. Okay? So that's, that's the first presupposition. So when we read about miracles, that's where I'm coming from first and, first and foremost. And then the second presupposition is related to the first, and that is that miracles are real. Okay? That miracles are real. Um, I say that because of the first presupposition, that the Bible is true and reliable in every respect. So miracles are real. And um, that really does need to be said. Because the modern day that in which we live, maybe not amongst you, it doesn't need to be said so much, but in the world in which we live and move and operate, miracles, a lot of people do believe in miracles of some kind, even if they're not particularly Christian about it. A lot of people do. But, uh, but we live in a time that is highly influenced still by a period known as the Enlightenment. So that means that skepticism, scientific, even materialistic or atheistic skepticism is behind the way many people, even in the church, uh, you know, so-called, even in the church, there are many skeptics who read the Bible with, the, with the, uh, their presupposition is that miracles don't happen. So that's a very, so when they read the Bible, if, you, if, you're, if your assumption is that miracles can't happen and you read the Bible, uh, well, that's going to change. You have to, you have to read it differently. Uh, how would you do that? Well, you might look at, like we're going to read Acts 3 where there's a healing. Peter performs a healing. And so if you're a skeptic, even if you see yourself as in some sense a Christian, uh, but if you're that kind of skeptic, you read this kind of passage and you have to explain it away. So uh, how would you do that? There's, there's, there's probably two ways you could do that. And one way to explain away the miracles, uh, the healing miracles, is to say, uh, well, something happened. But not, what it, not that. It, something happened, but uh, probably can be explained by something like, it was a psychosomatic illness, and by the power of suggestion, uh, someone got better. Right? Um, that, you know, so even when I talk about exorcisms and demon possession, which will mostly be next, time, um, you know, so a common way that skeptical people will read exorcisms stories in the Bible is to say, well, there's no such thing as demons. There's no demon possession. Instead, the, the story we read is, is something like, a, it's, an, it's an, a, a natural illness that we know of, like maybe epilepsy, so they're having seizures, or, or schizophrenia where there's hallucinations, and, and uh, they think they're hearing voices, or they think that there's things going on, and so um, uh, that's what's really happening. It's not a it's not a a real demonic possession. And I'll deal with that when I talk more about possession exorcism in detail. So you might the, the skeptic is going to read the miracle stories and say, well, this is a psychosomatic thing. It, it's not exactly what it says it is. And the other way to to um, navigate that if you're a skeptic is to say, well. Um, it didn't happen. <laughs> you know, it didn't happen. It's, uh, it's a myth in some sense. It's a myth by which uh, you mean it has a meaning. It means something spiritual, but it didn't happen historically. That's the mythological way to read the Bible. And there are plenty of people who do that, especially in academies, universities, even seminaries. That, you know, they have a mythological reading. They're not even sure Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, he probably existed, but uh, most of what's in the Bible we can't rely upon, they would say, as history. Instead, how does it make you feel? Kind of an existentialist uh, interpretation. How does it make you feel? What effect does it have on you? That's what matters. So, um, 
uh, a few years ago. Um, uh, there are at least two resurrections in the book of Acts. I don't know if I'll get to them, but there are at least two resurrections in the book of Acts. But as you know, Jesus raised several people from the dead also. And uh, a couple of years ago, I read just a, um, some website. It was a news, um, a news website. I forget which, but a rather liberal one. A Huffington Post. Okay? A few years ago, I read an article on the Huffington Post, which is not known for having a you know, particularly conservative or religiously conservative approach. But there was an editorial, and it was at Easter time, so the editorial was about Easter. And while the author said some things I didn't agree with, what I liked about it is that he defended the historical nature of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And he says that he went to church that morning. I can send you a link if you're interested in this article. Um, he, he said he went to church that Sunday morning, and, and he happened to mention it was an Episcopal church. And the, the priest in his congregation said, well, what, what matters is not where the corpse of Jesus is. What matters is that uh, it makes us think of higher things uh, above the earth. It may, the, the promise of resurrection is really about spiritual uplift. And so my, my author, who, who's writing this, uh, says, well, that, you know, what good is that? Uh, that, you know, if, if, the, if the corpse of Jesus is, is dust, then, uh, you know, he gets it right. Okay, he gets it right that that means our faith is useless. And the way he explains the bodily resurrection, of, not some spiritual phenomenon, but the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and our own bodily resurrection uh, is quite good. You know, he defends it. Uh, and he just has a good, because he's an editorialist for a newspaper, basically, he has a way with words. So I liked it a lot. And uh, so he did not have a, that skeptical approach, even though his priest does. Right? So this is maybe not part of your experience in church, but let me tell you, it is many people's experience with church. Is, uh, can we trust these things historically to be true? So I'm operating with the assumption that we can. <laughs> um, well, just another word on that. The um, naturalistic, skeptic, skeptical approach relies a lot upon a philosopher named David Hume. Now, you don't have to remember his name. But David Hume uh, uh, doesn't believe in miracles, and so he wrote something called uh, On Miracles. Okay? And he said, this is why we know miracles don't happen. He says, um, uh, natural laws uh, cannot be broken. Therefore, miracles can't happen. Okay, well, um, you know, th that's only true if they don't happen. I mean, ma natural laws can be broken if miracles. I mean, so it says, he, he's, it's a what's called a circular argument. Uh, so, so another way to put it, let me see, I wrote my notes here. Another way to put it would be, yeah, that miracles can't happen because they don't happen. And we know they can't happen. Uh, no, no, I got it wrong. Miracles can't happen, therefore they don't happen. They can't, so therefore they don't. Um, and, the, the, and we know they can't because they don't. You know, I mean, so it's a circular argument. It doesn't prove anything, but that's, that's kind of how it. But you will hear people say that. It's like, well, you know, you can't break natural laws. Gravity, um, the, the law, natural law that we all know about, that when you die, you it's forever, I mean, except for the Christian hope, right? We know that. But, uh, but our experience is that people don't rise from the dead, so therefore they can't rise. That's his argument. All right, so hopefully, I'm sure I didn't do it justice. But, uh, okay, so there are, um, in, uh, in the miracles in the New Testament are plentiful, and they're in the Old Testament too. Uh, but in the four Gospels, there are, um, I think, uh, I, uh, at least, there are 22 uh, in, uh, unique miracle stories in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and four Gospels. There are 22 unique miracles. And when I say unique, I'm, 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 not, I'm ruling out those that are repeated in the Gospels. So some of the, some of the miracles appear in two of the Gospels, so I'm not counting that as two miracles. Okay? So 22 miracles appear... <coughs> In the Gospels, 
but it's actually even more. Those are um, specific ones because there's other times in the Bible, in the Gospels, where it'll just say, and Jesus went about healing a bunch of people. Okay, well, we, I, not even counting that. Okay, so not even counting that, which is, you know, groups of people, specific individuals, 22 miracles. Not all healings, but, uh, but uh, uh, mo most of them. Okay. Now, in the book of Acts, there are how many individual miracles? Um, not just healing, but all miracles in the book of Acts. There's uh, probably 20. If I counted, I'm probably only off maybe one or two. Give or take one or two. I counted 20 individual miracles recorded in the book of Acts. And uh, some of them are healings. Some of them are, uh, like I said, there's a couple of people get raised from the dead. There's a couple of exorcisms. The speaking in tongues I'm going to count as a miracle. Um, there's an earthquake. There's a few like nature miracles or, or um, you know, in the natural world like an earthquake or something like that. There's, um, there's wrath. <laughs> there's a couple of miracles of wrath. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead and, uh, uh, and at least one other time. Yeah, Herod uh, dies violently. It's God, God strikes them dead. So those are uh, not natural deaths. Um, so, so 20 individual miracles. And then beyond that, nine what I'll call clusters. Like before, uh, you know, Stephen went about doing signs and wonders and healing people. Okay, well, I'm not counting that. That's counted under the clusters. So that, as you can see, I, 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 I give you that statistic to show you that they're all over the place. They're, they're, they're on, on many of the pages of your Bible, uh, the Gospels and, and the Book of Acts, the historical parts and the Old Testament. When you get into the epistles of Paul, um, miracles are referenced, but it's not a major part of his teaching. He doesn't spend a lot of time, say, for instance, in the book of Romans or something, uh, teaching about miracles, how to do them, what, what the theory is behind. It's, it's just, but, uh, but in the historical books, they're all over. Why? Why do we read these stories in the Bible and in the New Testament? What, is the, um, what do they mean? Okay. Uh, they're historically true, so I don't have to sweep the, tr the historical nature of them under the rug to find some meaning, like a myth. Okay, not doing that. It's historically true, but it also means something. These aren't just random uh, events, because uh, John tells us that uh, there are many things that Jesus said and did that are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe and have eternal life. So that's why they're written. So, so the authors of the books here, of the history books, are being selective. They're not being deceptive, but they're de being selective. They can't say everything, so they're deciding what to say. So why do they decide to say over and over and over again miracles? It's not just because they happened, um, as if, you know, it's just, well, this, because they decide what they're going to record. And, uh, and they Maybe, you know, they just record one. I mean, get, get this. But to record so many, I think, should tell us that it's significant. This isn't just about, you know, a linear, you know, on Monday this happened, on Tuesday this happened. It's not like that only. Okay, so uh, how can we read these? And I think the Bible, well, of course, the Bible itself answers my question. Uh, in John's Gospel, for instance, miracles uh, of all sorts are frequently referred to as signs. That's important. So the Bible will use different words. It'll use signs, it'll use wonders, and it'll use miracles. Signs, wonders, and miracles. And there's not necessarily three different things. Uh, a sign, a miracle, a, a miracle is a sign. Okay. So... Uh, by definition, I'm going to define a miracle as something that humans can't do or that nature doesn't do. Right? Only God can do a miracle. That's what a miracle So I don't mean, you know, we often will use in our common conversation the miracle of modern science. Or we might even say, you know, uh, um, after a, a birth, you know, the, the, the miracle of birth. And, and I don't want to take away from that. But that's also nature. <laughs> it is the nature of human beings and all, you know, 
all living things in creation reproduce. So it is, it is the nature of those. It's still miraculous in a, maybe a broad sense because God's at work. Okay. But, uh, but I'm not referring to that. Those you know, natural miracles or natural wonders that are given in, and still God is doing it. And we, but, uh, but, but in the New Testament, miracle will refer to something more than that. Something that is not part of our nature, God-given nature, but not part of our nature to do. Like to rise from the dead. Or to have, um, uh, you know, to be blind and now I see kind of thing. So a miracle is something only God can do and that he does do. Um, as a sign, let's use that word sign. Why does John and elsewhere, why is the word sign used to refer to these things? When you think of a sign, uh, think of any, you know, think of like a traffic sign. The point of a traffic sign is not the material of the sign itself. Right? You see a sign that says, uh, danger, don't enter. Okay? Now the important part. Um, the, there is a sign. It's real. It's really there. But the important part of that is not the metal and paint of the sign. It's that it's telling you something um, about reality. Okay? It's telling you that there's uh, something important you need to know and maybe you need to respond to it. So I'm not saying that the miracles didn't happen and that they're only myth but that there is meaning also. There's signs. So what do they point to? A sign is only important according to what it, what it points to. Not itself, right? What does, it, what does it point to? And so when the Bible talks about the signs that Jesus performs, uh, they are, what are they pointing to? They're pointing to, uh, I think we can say a couple of things. That Jesus is God in the flesh. That Jesus is God incarnate. That with Jesus Christ, God is visiting his people and dwelling in their midst. Not in the omnipresent sort of way, um, in which he's never absent. But uh, that God is in a, uh, an, in a man visiting earth. <laughs> visiting his people. Uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, so, so that's one thing. We read these signs... And they indicate that this is God in the flesh. Because God heals, God raises from the dead. They, of course, of course, the miracles, especially the miracles of healing, are also to benefit the people getting healed, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons. Jesus is compassionate, not just about getting you saved so that you die and go to heaven. You know, so I often like to say that uh, Christianity is not just about life after death. It's also about life before death. Okay? We're alive now. Like, and, and that's not like, you know, this is the unimportant part. The real important part only happens when you die. I don't think that's Christian. I don't think that's biblical. Um, no, we're, right now matters too. And so when Jesus heals the sick, he doesn't just say, well, uh, be patient. Because one day you'll be free of disease when you die and go to heaven. That's a true thing. But when he heals people, he's also exhibiting God's real compassion for the suffering of humanity. Um, a, a mystery, though, is that Jesus didn't heal everybody. Right? I mean, there's no indication that everyone on earth, uh, I could have. Why didn't Jesus just say, heal, and everyone on earth uh, got well? Uh, he, there's no indication that that happened. I don't think it did. Um, you know, when Jesus, uh, his friend Lazarus died, and he goes to him, he's late. And so Jesus says, Lazarus died while he tarried. And Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, chide him, both of them, Lord, if you'd only been here, <laughs> this wouldn't have happened. And, uh, you know, so, and you know the story, and he goes on, he ends up raising Lazarus from the dead. And the way he does it is he says, Lazarus, come forth. And uh, Martin Luther had a, a little opinion on that, and he said, he said, Lazarus, come forth. He called him by name, because if he had just said, come forth, all the dead <laughs> would have come out. I don't know. I mean, yes, that's a, I, I, you know, I think that's kind of a good point. 
yes, Jesus could have raised all the dead. Yes, he can heal all the sick. And yes, that is the promise for um, the future world, right? The future life of the resurrected body will be glorified. And so if people don't get miraculously healed, that should not be seen as an indication that they are not loved by God or that God does not have compassion on them or, or that he doesn't have as much compassion on them as he does for those who get the miracles. Okay, so that's a bit of a mystery as to, you know, why does this person get healed and this other person maybe doesn't. Um, but, uh, but it should not be understood as saying that Jesus has compassion on some but not others. Nonetheless, when he does heal people, they are benefited, at least temporarily, right? All those people got sick again. Uh, they all died, right? I mean, so Lazarus, <laughs> Lazarus died, got raised. And as far as we know, died again. As far as we know. I mean, he could have been assumed um, to heaven, but Jairus' daughter, uh, the, the widow of Nain's son, and, and those. Uh, Jesus didn't. Jesus rose and he, he didn't die again. When we rise on the last day, death will be gone. There will no, be, be no more death. So the resurrection of Lazarus and the others, like in, in you know, um, uh, Eutychus, you know, Eut the story of Eutychus in the book of Acts, uh, it's a great story. Uh, Eutychus is listening to Paul preach, and he's sitting in an upper window, and it's so boring uh, that he falls asleep and falls out the window and dies. So he got bored to death by, by Paul's message or teaching, and Paul goes out and, and raises him, okay? Now, um, that is a resurrection of a kind, but it's, it's actually, maybe the word resurrection isn't the best word because it's not the same, I mean, uh, it's not the same as what we will experience in the last day when death will no longer exist. Because, as far as we know, Eutychus died again, as far as we know. But, um, uh, so, all right, so that's, uh, that, so those are, I'm trying to explain why miracles, why healings, what the sign, what they mean. God is compassion for his people. Jesus is revealing that he is the location of God on earth. When you asked, if you asked a first century Jewish person, a devout Jew in the first century, where is God? Okay. Now they knew that God is everywhere. Okay. They understood that God is omnipresent. There's nowhere you can go where God is not. But what would a first century Jew if you asked him, where is God located? Well, where's the presence of God? Um, he would have pointed toward Jerusalem, the temple. The Holy of Holies is God's house. God's presence was understood to be there in, for our benefit, okay, in a different way than omnipresent. That's why Jesus says that uh, he identifies himself as the temple. Right? He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. And they thought he meant the stones and mortar. And uh, so how's that? And he said, no, no. Uh, the, the body, the temple is, okay. So the presence of God is not so much now in the Holy of Holies, but the presence of God on the earth is the man Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God and Son of Man, Jesus Christ. He's the, he's the temple. And in, an, in a sense, we're the temple, right? Y your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, uh, you know, so after Pentecost, we, the body of Christ, we're still the body of Christ. The body of Christ, but it's us, are the presence of God on the earth. In a way, that's different than his omnipresence. So these are things that the miracles teach. And yet one more. One more thing I'll say about it. Then we'll read maybe Acts 3. <laughs> Uh, if we don't get it to it, if I, we won't finish the healing stuff today. I, I, I've blocked two, two weeks for this, two class periods. Um, <clears throat> so I have a third reason, and uh, th th this is that uh, Jesus is reversing the curse. With the presence of Jesus Christ, with the coming of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, with the coming of Jesus Christ, and, of course, his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. All of that together is the kingdom of God happening. Okay? It's the inauguration of the kingdom of God. Okay? The kingdom of God, for us, is not simply a future thing. It's a now thing. The kingdom of God is present now amongst you. 
not just something to look forward to. So the kingdom of God in which uh, truth, love, and justice reign is already begun. It's been inaugurated, is how we like to say it, the kingdom of God. So Jesus is reversing the curse. Uh, just as the curse brought in death, Jesus is turning the clock back on that for something new. The new creation is going. And uh, one passage that, that gives us a good uh, indication of that is the, the passage where Jesus heals the blind man, and uh, he does it in a very interesting way. Often he'll just say, you know, be healed, rise up, walk. But when he heals the blind man, he does something really, I would say, interesting. He, 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 he spits <laughs> into, the, into the dust and makes mud and puts the mud on the man's eyes and then says, now go wash and you'll be able to see. Now, it's, uh, it's a, you know, again, I don't think any of these things are recorded as just, you know, it's just meaningless fact. It, it's fact, but, um, but, but what's going on? So one, one way to explain that is that the creator who fashioned Adam from the dust of the ground is giving this man newly created eyes. The creator, he didn't have to do any of that. Just as God didn't have to create Adam by using the, forming him from the earth, but he did. So the creator in Christ is reforming. It's an indication that the new crea a new creation has begun. That hasn't been completed. We will witness that. We will witness this consummation or the completion of the new creation, but it has begun in Christ already. And that helps us redefine our lives. We are uh, walking uh, and living in and testifying to the birth of the kingdom of God in the presence of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so when we preach the gospel, when we baptize, when we teach, when we heal, okay, and in the many ways that we do that, um, God's kingdom is being uh, revealed. Okay, so uh, let me just, uh, uh, let me give you a Bible passage to back up what I'm saying. Uh, it's Luke 11:20 for those of you who are keeping score. Luke 11:20. 20. Um, it's not about healing, but it's about exorcism. But Jesus says, if I cast out the demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, so these, these exorcisms and healings and miracles are evidence, not just signs uh, as to something that's potential. They're evidence that the kingdom of God is there. All right. Okay. Uh, let's read Acts 3. Let's read some of it anyway. I will read, and uh, I'll probably read the first 10 verses and stop. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was be, uh, being carried, whom they laid at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. Um, and, uh, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened. Now the second half of the chapter, which we will read sooner or later. The second half of the chapter is Peter preaching about this. Because they're all wondered and amazed. And so Peter, uh, he preaches about it. Just like he does in Acts 2. Everybody's amazed at all this speaking in tongues, and Peter interprets it in a sermon. Well, he does the same thing here, but we may, we'll get to that eventually. So the, the actual healing 
um, the, the, the event is, uh, okay, the first, the first bit. So let me point out a couple things. First is Peter and John. Um, there's no Paul in the picture yet, so Peter and John, especially Peter, are the focal point in this part of the book. What are they doing? They're going up to the temple in Jerusalem at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. In, um, uh, in, in Judaism, it was conventional it, it, to pray twice a day. Uh, you know, you pray all the time. But you had twice a day designated as your time to stop whatever you're doing, drop it, and pray. Okay, it's good discipline. And that's what they did. So twice a day, at least, okay, at least the twice a day. And it would be um, the third hour and the ninth hour. And uh, what, is, what are those? Well, if you're measuring time according to, say, dawn, sunrise, uh, if, we, if we just sort of uh, generally fix the time of dawn for our sakes as about 6 a.m., the third hour would be 9 a.m., and the ninth hour would be 3 p.m., okay? So uh, Jesus died at the ninth hour. He died at about 3 p.m. Uh, so the, so, so, so the, the third hour and the ninth hour were the customary times for the Jews to stop and drop and pray. Um, and going to the temple was a, you know, if you were near the temple, could do that. That's a thing also that you would do. You would go to the temple uh, for prayer. It doesn't say that they're taking sacrifices. Uh, most likely they don't do that anymore because Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the once and for all sacrifice. He's the high priest. After the death of Jesus, there are no more sacrifices to be made. That's why the temple doesn't factor into Christian theology at all at this time. So, um, so it's unlikely Peter and John are still going there, they're, but they're still going to the temple, right? They're still practicing their, the, the practices of their faith that they grew up with. They're going up to pray at the ninth hour, the customary time. There is a psalm, Psalm 119 says, uh, it's that Psalm 119 says, seven times a day I pray which is where Christian monks get their orders, right? Christian monks later, much later, Christian monks pray seven, actually eight times a day. If you go join, if you become a monk or a nun, join the local, especially the Benedictine monastery, you will stop and drop whatever you're doing seven times a day, really eight. And uh, that's, their, that's, their, that's their life. If you're Eastern Orthodox, it'll be even more. Because for Psalm 119 says seven times a day, I praise you. Also, Paul says, pray continuously. Pray without ceasing. So, so anyway, that's a, why Christian monks, partly why they do that. But these guys uh, are doing the twice-a-day thing at minimum. And uh, the lame man, lame from birth, is uh, brought by friends, right? It's very similar to the miracle of Jesus where the, he was in a crowded house and nobody could get to him, so his friends went on the roof. <laughs> deconstructed the roof and lowered their man down who couldn't walk, and Jesus did. Healed him and forgave his sins. Kind of like that. This man, it's good to have friends. <laughs> it's good to have friends. Uh, so his friends, uh, who, who does it say? Whom they, okay, whom they laid daily at the gate. Because um, he couldn't walk there himself. Um, why lay him daily there? Because at least twice a day, every, all the men in Jerusalem are probably going to try to go to the temple. And there's, uh, uh, there's eight, at this, at this time, there are eight gates to the temple, eight doors to the temple. And Josephus tells us that um, seven of the eight are covered in silver and gold. Door, big gate, and uh, one of them is bronze. But uh, so... Uh, Everybody's going into the temple twice a day to, to pray. So that's a lot of people. So if you need alms, that's an appropriate, that's a very, not only is it good because there'd be a lot of foot traffic, but the people going and coming are probably feeling pretty pious, which is good, you know, for business if you're, if you're begging. And uh, I, I don't mean to make fun of it, but, but I think you get my point. That's a good place to go. Um, if, you, if you need alms. And almsgiving was in Judaism and, and, and is in Christianity a virtue. 
Okay? It's strongly taught throughout the Old Testament. Even Jesus says, Jesus says, sell all that you have and give to the needy. Okay? So almsgiving, giving to the poor, giving to the needy, is uh, a part of their lives. So it was not most likely that people looked at this guy and said, you know, go get a job. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's lame. He can't. So they, they didn't have sort of a, a, the same kind of social net, social security. So almsgiving was very, very important. And uh, religious duty. It was a responsibility to take care of the poor. It was a responsibility. But what I love <laughs> is the guy asks for alms. Is that what he got? No. Did he ask for healing? No. So he didn't get what he asked for. But I would argue he got more <laughs> than he asked for. Isn't that a beautiful concept? That God is so generous that he gives more and abundantly more than we can ask or think. Or think to ask. So the man is looking for a small help, but a necessary one. And Peter makes it so that he doesn't need to ever beg again. He can take care of himself and his family from now on. Okay? It's the whole, is it better to give a fish, feed a man for a day, or teach him how to fish and hang eat every day? Well, <laughs> you know, Peter and John, we're going um, to heal you, and that's even better, in the name of Jesus. But, uh, but he doesn't even ask for it. Um, but he's pretty, pretty pleased that it happened. Um, uh, there's a great quote. I'm just going to have to read it to you. There's a great quote from C.S. Lewis. Okay? C.S. Lewis, uh, 20th century uh, scholar, writer, died on the same day as John F. Kennedy. C.S. Lewis wrote a bunch of stuff, but he's got this one essay called Weight of Glory, which is really good. I commend it to you. It's a little hard to read, so you might have to, I find it hard to read, and, um, uh, uh, but, but that's just because I'm, <laughs> uh, sometimes I have to read things two or three times before I know what I've read. So in it he says, uh, this little quote, he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. Amazing thought there um, uh, that uh, often, you know, Jesus himself, Jesus says, you, you have not because you ask not. So to, uh, not that some kind of um, uh, uh, theology of glory or theology of prosperity um, I'm teaching, no. But, uh, but, but God does, uh, he does bless us in ways that we're not even seeking. Um, ultimately, in the glorious of the future. But even now, we get, we get uh, instances of it. Anyway, so, so he's asking for alms. Peter makes him able to walk. Uh, uh, God, Jesus, as Peter is the mediator. I mean, even, even Peter says that um, uh, later on when he, when he, def when he explains it. Uh, just skip over and look at verse 14. And his name, Jesus' name, because it says he healed him in the name of Jesus, right? Uh, back to verse 6. Peter said, I have no silver or gold. Why doesn't he have silver and gold? Um, well, we read in Acts 2, just right before this, actually exactly right before this, that the Christians in Jerusalem were selling all their possessions and living, uh, sharing everything. Um, not that that's a mandate, but that's what they were doing. So... He, uh, he says, I don't, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So it's always in the name of Jesus by the command and authority and promise of Jesus Christ. So later in verse 14, and in his name, by faith in his name, 
That's a nice addition. So it's not a magic abracadabra. Say the words right, and it, get, it makes things happen. By faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man his perfect health in the presence of all. So, uh, yeah, so, so Jesus is the one that is at work through the mediation of Peter. I'll pause. Comments or uh, questions? Okay, so uh, up here, Pastor Bell. I'm always nervous when another pastor asks a question because <laughs> it's, it's, it's guaranteed to stump me. The, the def, definitely not, uh, Dr. Stigemeyer. The whole um, the whole idea here that you brought up of prosperity gospel, the boogeyman. You know, your best life now. We can't. Mm. That's the Lutheran boogeyman, right? And and yet. Yeah, we don't like it. Right? We don't like it. It's bad. It is bad. <laughs> um, but you know, Jesus talking to the woman at the well in John four you know, saying, you know, the, the field is ripe, you know, and the disciples, they just stopped in this dirty little Samaritan town to go buy food. Like, they're not thinking about anything. They come back with the food. Jesus has just talked to this woman who is right in front of them, and she's gone now to, like, bring the whole town to, you know, believe in him. And he's like, you know, I have food that you don't know about, you know, talking about the will of God that he's doing right now. Yeah. And the disciples are like, did someone give him bread? Like, what's, <laughs> what, what's, what's going on here? Right. And I want, I, I'm concerned that the Lutheran church, you know, we take the boogeyman as an excuse to do absolutely nothing now. And I'm not saying we could make our lives perfect, but I mean, yeah. what there's the, there's the whole, um, there's the Brit story it's just a lame sentimental anecdote, but the guy who dies goes to heaven and there's this box or whatever, and God says, don't look in the box. And the guy looks in the box and he's like, oh man. And it's full of all the blessings God wanted to give him that he never asked for. So, never asked for. So, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's, I, I, I appreciate that. That's a very good observation because, and I agree with you, because it is a tendency for us to spot an error and we want to correct and it's a tendency to overcorrect. That's true of a lot of things, right? So, um, so th there's a ditch on this side of the road. To avoid it, I'll go really far over here, and oh, I fell in that ditch. Okay. So, so, so that's what I'm hearing you saying is that well, let's be careful not to over. Now, of course, there are some things that probably don't fit my illustration, <laughs> you know. But, uh, <clears throat> but yeah, let's not be so quick. Uh, well, I mean, it's certainly appropriate to uh, point out the errors of what we would call the prosperity gospel. Um, but that shouldn't lead us, I agree with you, that shouldn't lead us to the sort of thinking that I've been trying to teach against. That uh, really, um, the whole real thing about, yeah, it's nice now, but really, Christian life begins when you die. And I, I don't think that's biblical. I don't think it's a Christian belief. That's not a, I don't know what it is, but it, I mean, there's no evidence, you know, that you can say, I mean, that's what the, some people say, you know, you, you know, pie in the sky when you die, right? You know, it's just kind of, um, <clears throat> well, our hope is for eternity, right? I mean, I don't, I don't want to overstate my other point there. We, we do look toward something. We look toward the coming of our Lord, the resurrection of all the, the, you know, the, the, the falling away, the glorification of our bodies, the falling away of sin and death, the consummation of the creation, new creation. But the new creation has already started. It has started. And part of that new creation is, uh, is, is, is seen in the miracles. But part of that new creation is also seen when, uh, when you, uh, because you love Jesus Christ, give a cup of water to a child, okay? When you, you know, when you clothe the hung, uh, naked, when you feed the hungry, these are evidences of God's reign on earth, okay? Now, right, I mean, the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, this, I mean, when, when we gather in the name of Jesus Christ to receive his gifts in his presence, um, there, there is no more. Uh, exciting presence of God breaking in of, of eternity into the now 
than, than the divine service. Okay? Um, heaven on earth, earth and heaven. The, you know, when we are hearing the gospel, when we are communing with Christ and one another and all the saints, uh, the, the, the line between heaven and earth has become porous and blurry. So, but it's not only in those four walls. Okay? When you teach your children to pray, when you show mercy to your neighbor, um, you know, these are ways that God is working through you as his body to make evident his reign. Now, it's not always as, I mean, it's, it's not always as obvious as if I could make a lame man stand up and leap around. That's a little more obvious. But, uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't think we should. I think you're, I think you're onto something. I don't think we should so over, just saying, oh, I'm really miserable, and that's the way it should be, and uh, don't help me, right? Because I'm supposed to be miserable. Um, Right, I'm, I'm caricaturing it, but, but yeah, you know. We, the prosperity gospel is that teaching, it's a false teaching which says uh, ultimately that the forgiveness of sins and uh, union with Christ is not the gospel. That's the prosperity. The prosperity gospel is health and wealth and, um, you know, getting your, uh, all your needs met in here now, your best life now. Um, uh, but not the forgiveness of sins, not the, uh, the glory uh, of, of the resurrection. Those are, at best, appendixes. That's the prosperity gospel, which is an error. It's a dangerous error. And it's popular. <laughs> Big churches, right? Big church. And you can understand why that would be attractive. Uh, so I hope I've, I hope I've uh, spoken enough about, about that without um, angering people or... Misleading everyone. <laughs> um, uh, so um, let, let's, let, me, let me look at a couple of uh, promises. So I'm just going to read to you uh, Isaiah 35. And follow along if you want to quickly look it up. But Isaiah 35, 1 through 10. But I'll just read it. Actually, I'm just going to read uh, verses 5 and 6. So Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So when is the prophet speaking of? The lame man shall leap like a deer. Is he talking about heaven after you die? Isn't it in fact talking about Acts 3, where a lame man fulfills this prophecy right there? And leaps, do you think that when Luke wrote the word leap, that he only wrote it uh, because it happened? Of course it happened, and so he's recording what happened. But, um, but people knew this. They, they knew this prophecy. The, 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 the Jews knew their Old Testament, or their Hebrew Bible. They didn't call it the Old Testament. Uh, the, the lame man will leap like, an, like a deer. Luke is showing that's happening. It's not only a future thing. It's happening right now in your in your, uh, in your presence. In your, okay. So the, yeah, the, the leaping part is kind of fun. Um, then, uh, do I want to say more about that? Uh, I'm out of time. It's 10.14, and uh, we're supposed to end at 10.15. So uh, clearly, uh, we, didn't, we didn't finish Acts, uh, Acts chapter 3, but um, stay tuned. <laughs> so God bless your, your time in God's house today. You're welcome.